you're looking to change things up in your classroom. You'd like to see more student participation and interest, or you really need a better way to tap into each student's individual abilities. Maybe you're happy with everything in your classroom and you're just that teacher who will stop at nothing to provide the very best opportunities for your students so you're always open to hear more good news. Well, let me personally welcome you to the Student-Centered Science Teacher Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Carosis. I'm a secondary science teacher with 11 years experience teaching at-risk students in a distance learning cyber model. And yet, I've realized success in my efforts to plan for and execute student-centered learning. See, I believe that a science teacher's job goes beyond transferring specific content knowledge. Rather, I believe our duty is to prepare students for life beyond our walls, to help develop them into informed, active members of society who can confidently make all kinds of decisions. So on this podcast, our discussions will focus on strategies to promote active learning in the classroom and their outcomes, as well as creating and nurturing a culture that enables students to take ownership of their learning by planning next steps and implementing our feedback. Here, we believe that our classrooms are learning laboratories, not just for students, but also for teachers. You'll always get encouragement to keep on experimenting because what you do and how you do it matters. Let's jump into today's topic. Before I get started today, I want to remind you that I've invited you to review this podcast. And as a thank you for doing that, I'll gift you any lesson currently available for sale in my store. Well, since extending that offer last week, I've created a more formal and automatic process for you to do that. You know, I listen to a lot of podcasts these days myself, and yet I was totally clueless about how to submit a review. A quick search helped me out, but what I found was only for the Apple podcast player I listened through. Of course, each player has a different mechanism for collecting reviews. Honestly, when I extended the offer to you, I totally foresaw that. It's why I also included a simple social share about the podcast in the offer. But last week, I told you to send me evidence of your review or your social share. For some of you, I get it, an email is too personal. You may not want to connect with me that closely just yet. So I've added a completely automated process to the podcast page of my website. My website's at www.labineverylesson.com. Now, when you visit my website and click on podcast in the menu at the top right corner and scroll to the bottom of the episode list, you'll see an area to submit your name, email address, and either a screen captured image of your podcast review on the podcast player of your choice or a screen captured image of your social share on any network or a written quote review in a text box that you permit me to use as social proof as I continue to promote the podcast. When you click submit, you'll receive an email with a promotional code for any interactive science lesson in my course on my website. I think you'll even be taken directly to the store on my website so you can use the code immediately. I've tested it, I promise folks it works. Now, the code you receive will not have an expiration date, 
but it will be a one-time use per person code good only for a PowerPoint file containing a complete interactive science lesson containing all the five elements of interactive science lessons for student-centered learning I've been discussing for the past month or so here on the podcast. And if you're new here, you just haven't gotten around to it yet, you can download that written guide to building your own interactive science lessons using this five element framework when you provide your email address at www.labineverylesson.com slash five elements. And that's the number five, E-L-E-M-E-N-T-S. Now, with all that business out of the way, let's discuss our fifth and final element of that framework. Today, we're talking about skill practice. I've been reviewing each of the five elements in the order of how I present them to students throughout the progression of a lesson. So skill practice for me is included on the heels of data-dependent analysis of our learning experience, activity, or activities. It's the piece that ensures the transfer of standard-based content and skills from the learning experience you created and students have executed. It was born from the very real concern I had when I first made the switch to student-centered learning in my chemistry classroom, that my largely at-risk student population might complete an activity but not connect the fundamental lessons from it in a way that allowed them to apply the knowledge to unique scenarios. Remember, this approach that I lovingly refer to as lab in every lesson is not an approach wherein students are executing lab lessons every day. As science teachers, we've been conditioned, perhaps even from when we were students, to execute, quote, lab tasks separately from normal content tasks. That is to say, we fondly referred to having lab day on the schedule. As part of said lab day, we'd perform an experiment of some kind or just observe something closely and then document notes in a notebook or in a worksheet with guided questions. Then we might submit it to a teacher to score and give back to us in a week or so. Here, I'm building a lab. Every aspect of that, quote, lab. The very scientific method we know and love. The hypothesis, an initial question generation, is incorporated as review and preview. The calling upon prior knowledge, maybe documented existing research or facts, incorporated as learning intentions and success criteria. The why. The act of observing and collecting data incorporated as the learning experience, the analysis of the outcomes of those experiments as data-dependent analysis, all of that goes into each and every lesson as the students become conditioned to consider that process, the scientific method, as the means through which they regularly learn facts. So it's absolutely critical, just like in the real world, that scientific knowledge we gain through this process, through experimentation and analysis, be put to use upon the culmination of our interactive science lessons. Outside the classroom, 
we build new materials and test them for use in specific applications. We build medicines and test them for use in specific applications. We examine the environment to identify trends which we can then use to make informed suggestions for specific industries like agriculture and energy production. At the end of each lesson, my students need to be able to do more than articulate what just happened in our 50-minute class period. According to my state standards, they need to do things like predict, classify, arrange, and calculate. And the list goes on. More challenging depth of knowledge related, Bloom's taxonomy related verbs, the success criteria verbs you used in your effort to clearly define the goals of the lesson. Students need to demonstrate they can do all these things with mastery, not just describe and explain. Now, don't get me wrong. For a student to be able to appropriately and thoroughly describe and explain is an incredible feat. Not to mention the value of those tasks as it relates to literacy initiatives and standards. However, sometimes when leaning on this particular framework for lesson planning, the student-centered science classroom, I think that quote describing and quote explaining the activities and the principles students learn from the activities might be easier, the easier of the verbs for them to execute. One example for which standard-based skill practice doesn't mirror the learning experience would be my lesson on the single displacement reaction, or even the double displacement reaction for that matter. In the single replacement reaction lesson, students watch a series of cartoon-like videos. They depict a metal strip submerged in a dilute hydrochloric acid solution. There are five videos in the series wherein each video a different metal is used. As an aside, this, is act this activity actually used to be available as a truly interactive activity for students where they clicked all the buttons to make things happen on the screen. But it was flash-driven technology, which is now officially obsolete. So I was just lucky enough to have screen captured it before flash expired. It's one of the great examples of how, yes, Student-controlled simulations are da bomb. <laughs> 90s girl here. But when the actions students take to complete the simulation don't affect the experimental design or student choice, they aren't really that important. And consider that when you're building your learning experiences, when you dismiss one source for another. What's most important is your anticipation of what they're going to see and your clarity in facilitating their analysis of the experience. But back to my single displacement lesson. Those of you who have been listening for a while now, you know sometimes I get off for a little while, but I always come back to it. Back to the single displacement lesson. I can't seem to say that today. Students watch a series of cartoon-like videos. They depict a metal strip submerged in that dilute hydrochloric acid solution. And I said there's five videos in that series. Each video has a different metal strip. Now the video zooms into the particle level. So you do get a macro and a micro view. And in the micro view, students can clearly see 
either a metal ion generated from that metal strip, like pops off, and it floats away from the metal strip when a hydrogen ion encounters it. So you can imagine this hydrogen ion floating in, hitting the metal strip, and now let's just say it's zinc, um, a zinc particle that is now plus two comes off and floats away. The alternative is that two particles just bounce off each other. So your strip is made of all these little circles, presumed to be atoms, and the hydrogen just bounces right off. Students document the results of all five interactions, all five metals with the HCl. And they classify the results according to whether or not chemical change has happened. So in some aspect, this is a very rudimentary type of observation in analysis. But they highlight hydrogen then on the activity series. Given an activity series, I haven't really defined it yet. And they highlight hydrogen, and then they circle each metal in the series in a different color, according to whether it did or did not produce a chemical change with that H plus ion. So analysis of that data teaches students that the elements on top of the activity series are more reactive and that they can replace those below them. Conversely, th those positioned below another atom are unable to do the replacement. It's a fundamental main idea of the lesson, how to use the activity series. But on the quiz or test, they'll need to evaluate an actual chemical equation to determine if it will proceed, if the products will form. They won't get to see this cutesy video or even necessarily pictures. If there's no replacement, then there's no chemical change and no reaction, right? So that's what they need to go through. The challenge requires them to interpret and use the activity series. Yes, and that is often very clear to them. But it also requires them to read the chemical equation, to interpret the chemical equation and determine which element switched. In fact, before they're able to even actually use that activity series. So my skill practice focuses on both of those skills. First, just the interpretation of the equation, right? I don't model it for them first. In fact, let me say, I rarely, if ever, model skill practice for students before issuing the questions. Now, I personally always do skill practice as a whole group activity. I'm a cyber school teacher. The technology I use to meet with students allows me to take advantages of polling features. So you'll find my skill practice in my lessons is often dominated by multiple choice questions. This serves the purpose of also mimicking the assessments I'm preparing them for. In my software, I'm able to see an overall result of the entire class as it pertains to percent correct versus incorrect, but I can also see individual results. And if you don't have that opportunity in your classroom uh, to do the, you know, the polling stuff, there's so much technology out there that makes it super fun and gamifies it, like um, quizzes, stands out to me. Kahoot is out there and super fun. So anything that provides you the opportunity to do the polling. But in addition to the formative assessment this gives me and the one-on-one -on -one interactions I can have during the learning experience portion of the lesson, I can collect even more information 
during this portion of the lesson, during skill practice. And it's not unusual for me to encounter a student who seems to be able to do the skill practice easily, but struggles with some aspect of the learning experience or vice versa. Those students are usually extremely apologetic at some point. Don't know why I didn't understand this or why I couldn't do it. And, you know, it's just a disconnect. That's because each of them, each of those portions of the lesson requires entirely different skills. One doesn't necessarily guarantee success with the other for every student. Now, going back to the single displacement lesson, I tend to use those terms interchangeably if you haven't noticed. Displacement and replacement. Single replacement, single displacement. They just come out of my mouth how they come out of my mouth, right? <laughs> oh, well. You follow me. I know you do. My students don't only have to decide whether or not a reaction will take place. That's not the only standard-based skill they have to accomplish that I have to teach them. An elevated skill, one requiring greater depth of knowledge, challenges students to predict the product formulas when a chemical reaction is predicted to occur. So, okay, I've got this scenario. Yes, we're going to get a switch. Now, what's the product going to be? What is that formula? Again, this requires students both apply their understanding of that subatomic event that takes place during the chemical change, that which they witness during the learning experience, and the use of the activity series, that which they encounter during the data-dependent analysis of their observations. So they've encountered both pieces. Now we just need to put it together. This particular lesson lends itself well to even incorporating relevance into skill practice. I provide students with an, another scenario. The reactant water, whose chemical formula, of course, is H2O, and copper. So I have H2O plus Cu copper arrow sign. I include a picture of water running out of a copper pipe. Because most teenagers don't know the nuances of how buildings are built and all those other things they innocently take for granted. The question I pose is plainly, will copper replace hydrogen when water interacts with the pipe? Now, not only does this provide valuable context, it kind of gets directly to your learning intentions in that way, the why you're learning this. But when I turn this into a discussion or writing assignment where students defend their position, citing evidence from what's provided to them on the slide I'm displaying or the scenario also tells me a little bit about how they think. Some students will go right to the chemistry, the standard-based content and skills they need to know and do. They'll note that copper is one position below hydrogen on the activity series and therefore, as they've learned, cannot replace hydrogen. There will be no reaction. The atoms will just bounce off each other in that submicroscopic view if we had one. Other students will answer the question entirely based off the fact that the picture depicts real water running through a real copper pipe. No corrosion is evident on the metal, and the water doesn't change colors. There's nothing floating in it. There's no physical evidence of chemical change from the image describing the interaction of the two substances. Therefore, they'll reason no reaction. 
Both answers, of course, are absolutely correct. And on a formal assessment, I probably expect them to cite both types of evidence because our lessons are so intensely focused on both the scientific method skill of observation and experimentation, as well as the scientific literacy related to reading and interpreting the, quote, language of a chemical equation and any supporting charts or tables we customarily rely on. So let's talk about double displacement for a moment. My lesson on double displacement actually is three distinct lessons for me. So the purpose of emphasizing the need to connect skill practice to the outcomes of the learning experience, um, I'll refer exclusively to my lesson on just the precipitation of products and predicting that outcome. So by the time they've done this, they have already learned how to identify a double displacement equation, reaction, and how that switch will happen. Uh, in that lesson, students conduct a series of experiments combining various ionic compounds in a single sample of water. Now, the ionic compounds are depicted simply as collections of circles. So you will have a cation portion and an anion portion. Cation circle and an anion circle. As I recall, and I haven't looked at it recently, I think it's just always two circles. Uh, so you can have, for example, Ca plus 2 floating in one circle and NO3 minus 1 floating in another circle. I don't recall if it's um, proportionally correct, you know, if you would have two anions for every cation, if that's how it worked out. In any case, they're depicted as circles, the anions. And every one of the ionic compounds put in the water will separate in the water. So we're only using compounds that do in fact dissolve. Once those ions are floating around in the water, they either keep floating around forever and ever, or they combine with an ion of opposite charge. One, of course, that's different from the iron they entered the water with. And they get stuck together and they sink to the bottom. And if you keep, if you have a lot of time and you can, can observe this process over time, those that sink to the bottom will start to conglomerate, you know, they'll start to like crystal grow at the bottom, attract them like magnets because we know that's what happens. But students log which ionic compounds are formed and which ones sink to the bottom. They document it in a graphic organizer. So the experience itself allows students to define precipitation. And I think this is the first place in my curriculum that students encounter precipitation in this way when we're studying it. But they need to be able to predict which substances will precipitate when they're formed from chemical reactions. There are simply not enough combinations in this simulation to facilitate the construction of an entire solubility chart. That would be like, wow, maybe a week-long task, right? So we're just getting a little snapshot here. But the data-dependent analysis of the experience guides students to identify that all the products that were formed and sank in the water contained the carbonate polyatomic ion. So with that really strong start, it's only at that point that I introduce a solubility chart. The learning experience provided them with the experimental evidence to learn that some products will no longer remain dissolved with their ions freely floating in water. But it's absolutely necessary for me to do some direct instruction, some modeling, 
with the solubility chart to verify the truth in their student-centered learning experience outcomes. Then the remaining skill practice requires them to use that combination of their experience, their analysis, and their direct instruction to satisfy the standard-based skills laid out originally in the success criteria for the lesson. Sometimes the learning experience and data-dependent analysis of one lesson will allow students to execute standard-based tasks for entirely different lessons or in a more summative manner. My freebie lesson on isotopes, which you can download for free in its various forms, we got the complete interactive lesson as PowerPoint, the digital notebook, and the premium teacher version of the digital notebook in both of my stores on my website, www.labineverylesson.com slash shop, as well as on Teachers Pay Teachers. This isotopes lesson has very little skill practice because the lesson is designed to define isotopes and model conventions for naming and symbolism, even their inherent stability as it relates to natural abundance. The learning experience and data-dependent analysis are very heavy there to support literacy. The terminology that's central to subsequent lessons about radioactive decay and transmutation. But on the semester test, our equivalent of a midterm, students have at least one question where they need to identify the isotope among a list of symbols. You know, they've got A, B, C, D, which one is the isotope? In that list, we've got a neutral noble gas symbol like NE, an ion like CA plus 2, and then an isotope like maybe NE-10 or C-14, so carbon-14. However, I can't really ask students this question or one like it at the end of the isotope lesson because they haven't yet learned the notation for an anion and we haven't talked in detail about neutral versus charged atoms. They don't choose the symbol with the dash and the number because that's all they know at the point that we're doing the lesson. And that's not really reflective of applied knowledge. It's kind of worthless to me diagnostically as a teacher in skill practice. But in the ions and ionization energy lesson, we can spiral back onto the isotope notation using a question just like this, where an isotope symbol is snuck into the answer options during skill practice for that lesson. Skill practice is an amazing portion of the lesson to incorporate spiraling. You don't need throwback Thursday to do that. While it's very clever and super cute, it's not necessary. Just do it on the regular. Remember, capitalize on the 60% they already know to provide challenge so they don't even think twice about you sneaking in something they haven't seen on the day you teach it, but maybe days or weeks before. And that's it, folks, for my five elements of effective interactive science lessons for student-centered learning. I would love, love, love to do a question and answer episode as a follow-up to this series. But to do that, I need questions to answer. Insert cute puppy dog face here. <laughs> if you've got a burning question about anything I've outlined in this series, or a specific question about a lesson you've actually prepared or have considered revising, send it my way. You can email me at lisa, L-I-S-A, at lab 
inEveryLesson.com. I think sometimes that sounds like lab and every lesson. It's LabInEveryLesson.com. Or privately chat me or publicly post your question in our free community at community.labineverylesson.com. And don't feel like there's an expiration on that request either. I may not get enough questions or comments in time for next week's episode, but I will continue to collect them and produce a question and answer episode whenever I'm able to do so. To revisit any elements of the framework I've discussed, remember to visit my website at www.labineverylesson.com slash five elements. You can download the complete guide there that gives you simple examples and recommendations of how to implement each of these elements. When you share your email with me, you'll also get added to my email list. And that might be super useful if you think any of my prepared lessons might work in your classroom. When I publish new lessons for sale, those that aren't already on Teachers Pay Teachers, I'm gonna be publishing them only to my website for one week at a lower price before publishing them on TPT for the masses. When you're on my email list, you'll get first dibs and a discount. And if you're not interested in my lesson resources, that's totally cool too. I'd still love to be able to connect with you from time to time. I promise I'll never overwhelm your inbox. Here's to an excellent start to yet another school year, everyone. Cheers.